magic of the sunstone, you're tuned into the Jewel Riders Archive. Hey Jewel fans, I'm Chris. And I'm Ronnie from the Jewel Riders Archive. We're here today with a great guest from Jewel Riders. We have the composer for the show, Mr. Lou Faganson. Welcome, Lou. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. So I guess to start us off, I'm curious, as the composer for the show, how did you get involved with Jewel Riders? Um, I got a call, this kind of goes back, I, w- I was arranging music in the 80s with Was Not Was, and Don Was's manager was a guy named Ken Kushnick, who was a childhood friend of Robert Mandel, and I got a call from Ken one day, uh, t- you know, just kind of introducing himself to me, and I said, well, what can I do for you? And he says, no, it's what I could do for you. Ah. So I went in to meet him. Uh, and, uh, he told me about the project and I got very excited. I went home. I actually wrote some music and, uh, a few days later met with Robert and I wanted to play him the music. And Ken's like, no, 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 don't play him the music. He'll think you write too fast. So, <laughs> so Robert pitched me the project <clears throat> and, uh, I thought it sounded great. It was actually based on the dragons of Pern series. By Ann, uh, what is it, Ann Caffrey? Ann McCaffrey? McCaffrey, yeah. Yeah. And, so were you brought in, just a quick sidebar then, when this was still being developed as Dragon Riders of Pern? Uh, I was brought in when it was still uh, the Ann McCaffrey books. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the Pern, the Pern books. Okay. Uh, so we're looking at pretty early on in the like 90s then, because we're looking around, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, 93, 94. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Okay. It's all a little vague because at the time I was doing uh, Princess Guinevere, my daughter was born. I didn't get a lot of sleep. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. So anyway, I wrote some music for it, and I really wanted to research it. I, I wanted to go Renaissance music. If you listen to it, there's lots of recorders, lots of harps, and uh, music theory-wise is very modal. Very European, except uh, the sections which are very. Uh, I was going to sort of Bernard Hermony, like Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, so, like classic adventure movie theme. Yeah, Mysterious Island, the things I loved as a kid. Mm-hmm. Now, both of those are Ray Harryhausen films, aren't yeah. they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's a yeah, great wizard, great isn't he? Great stuff. Yeah, talk about wizards. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you're inspired by those types of scorings. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, I would love to just back it up a little bit. So, sure. you know, kind of how you entered into this field. I mean, tell us a little bit more about, you know, kind of how you started out. Like what what inspired you to even pursue a composer, you know, job? Like what what inspired you initially about music? Uh, just my love of music. I started playing guitar around five or six years old. I have older siblings who were into the Beatles. And the Beatles albums were just coming out. I, you know, I'm a child of the late 60s and 70s. And uh, I taught myself how to play guitar. I would follow my sister to her music lesson and sit outside and listen. 
And then when, you know, when she got home, I was probably in first grade. I would, I would look at the book and I'd figure out the lesson that I'd hide her guitar again. <laughs> and one time I, I went along to the lesson and she got sick and I said, well, I'll take the lesson. They just kind of looked at me. So I went in and I took the lesson. <laughs> they bought my folks, bought me a guitar after that. <laughs> because you blew them away that you already kind of knew most of the skills. Well, it was just a couple chords, but the, the fact that I was so self-motivated, you know, and there's also the factor of, you know, sneaking into your sister's room, jimming open the guitar case, secretly learning to play it. You know, that, mm-hmm. that had a certain thrill factor, I guess. So now are the Beatles still some of your favorite bands or like in oh. your career, who has inspired you the most, do you think? Oh, oh, musically, the Beatles. But eventually I realized I wanted to become George Martin and write all the cool orchestral parts and do the arranging. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to be Paul or George. <laughs> I was playing, but, you know, <laughs> I wanted to do the, the interesting arrangements. Well, I love it because I think that for me personally, especially as a child, some of the scoring in the films that I loved, most of them were animated films. Those are the pieces that I loved because I felt like everyone was so focused on the actual songs from the films. I was like, no, like, did you actually hear the score? Did you hear how they did this? Or did you hear how emotional it was? I mean, it really carried the entire story. Yeah, it, it, it creates the mood. One of my favorite scores, a lot of people laugh at this, but it's Ghost and Mr. Chicken. Mm. <laughs> that's a fun movie yeah but it's Vic Mizzy you know who did the Adams Family TV show and mm-hmm. it's just so goofy and with with the weird electric guitar like they use it in Green Acres I mean it's just it's so bizarre but it works you're so, naming so many f- classic television shows I'm like oh my gosh I just I love all of those like and and you're right I mean it's the music that really carries the story and it sets each of the series apart from each other because it's unique you know, the different music and the stylings. Well, you listen to, uh, I still study these shows. There's Lost in Space. Mm-hmm. It's on MeTV sometimes, like after I MeTV. <laughs> and I record it because most of the music is done by Johnny Williams. John Williams. Mm-hmm. Was, oh, I did not know that. He had to knock these out in a week. It's like, well, you have, a, anybody can make an orchestra sound great. I mean, it's, it's not that difficult, but when you have, you know, eight to 12 people and you have a lot of space to fill and you have to make it work, that's a challenge. So things like that, all the scores to the twilight zone, the original twilight zone, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was raised on this just brilliant, brilliant work. And I want to, uh, I want to do that. I've always wanted to do that. It sounds like you're really inspired, by, especially by the science fiction genre. I am. Uh, is that one of the reasons why when you're presented with a fantasy, you know, cartoon like Jewel Writers that you're eager to do it? Oh, yeah. I wanted to take those elements and not do any of, uh, you know, the current cliches with rock band playing. It just doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. I see no. a lot of shows yeah. on that it's like, well, I wish I could have done that show. I would have brought, you know, tried to bring the Disney magic, mm-hmm. the orchestral magic to it. But yeah, other shows, uh, oh gosh. Okay, my mind is going blank here. <laughs> There's just too many of them, all those classic science fiction shows. So from... So I have from, a quick uh-huh. question. Yeah, sure. Um, so I know you mentioned you started with this property when it was still going to be a Dragon Riders of Pern adaptation. Yeah. yeah. Did Were you more excited about 
doing something for Dragon Riders of Pern, and were you disappointed or glad when you when it kind of morphed into Jewel Riders? I was very glad. Okay, that's Robert, interesting. Robert Mandel is a genius. He is an absolute genius. And I knew that if he was free from the restrictions of the book, that he could turn it into something. I think, as I recall, um, I recall a different than Alan Bobot does. I recall that Robert was at Toy Fair, and Anne McCaffrey had a problem with the plush. And I thought that was kind of odd. You know, they're trying to sell the dolls and whatnot. So Robert just, he I don't know if he just came up with it or really had it in the back of his head. Uh, Princess Guinevere, you know, was sort of a just-in-case, but he sold Guinevere. And I was I was thrilled. I was thrilled. And here's this guy who just hired me to do, you know, 13 half-hour episodes. Uh, before that, I had just done a bunch of industrial films, and I was a school teacher. So there you go. Oh, very cool. A music teacher? Yeah. I talk okay. It's always best to be a professor in something that you know about. So <laughs> let's back it up a little bit. Um, when you were talking about, you know, this toy fair and everything. So let me just get the kind of the timeline right. Um, you know, your friend Ken, I believe, introduces you to Robert. And then you kind of are given the job. So from there, aside from just being pitched out to say, hey, this is the Dragon Riders of Pern. You know, we're going to do an animated series based on it. What kind of like fill us in the gaps in there? Because it sounds like you have a lot of great behind the scenes stories. And I want to hear all of them. So I guess maybe chronologically in your head of you know, kind of what you remember, essentially. I remember writing five or six minutes of music to really get the job. And it was kind of, uh, if I could find it, I'll send it. I'll send you guys a copy. Oh, my well, gosh. That would be I'd fantastic. love to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it had, had the fantasy elements, had the harp, uh, melodic parts, had sort of the ethnic. I think they used some of the two in the show. Because I wanted to use a lot of ethnic and world music, a lot of drums. I wanted it to be very organic and earthy. And I used bagpipes and just, you know, things that would, uh, to me, over not just Renaissance music, you know, not just English music or Irish music, but kind of a kind of this uh, fusion of the two. And use the latest technology at the time, which I, I did everything on an Atari ST computer and a couple synthesizers. <laughs> technology, you know, when I wasn't playing Pong or <laughs> some of those games. Uh, but I wrote a piece and they loved it. And uh, soon after that, I started getting uh, storyboards. And they were, you know, roughly timed storyboards. So I think I did like a few episodes to the storyboards just to flesh out uh, the, this character is going to have this motif or this tone color. You know, here's how we're going to tie things together. Uh, my favorite thing in a show is to look at an episode and try and try and decipher what what's really needed. There, there was no direction for me. There were no directors. Uh, they were all on the East Coast. They would send me a VHS tape once a week with time code on one channel on the audio and the other channel had the voiceovers and that's all I had. And I just had to send them back something. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So it was Talk real, about free reign. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a real trial by fire, but you know, here I, I was, I was a newlywed. I had a house, had a family to support 
And uh, that's a lot of motivation. Definitely. <laughs> right. Nothing like starvation to motivate you. <laughs> so with regards to the technology and you're saying the computer, um, was it just basic software or did you have to buy the software? I mean, were, were you more or less a freelancer or were you actually hired on or how did that look? I'm always a freelancer. OK. Uh, always, always, always. I used a program called Cubase and it didn't didn't record audio, but you would record MIDI uh, like an electronic piano roll. And I yeah, MIDI, MIDI, MIDIs are like a lot of what they used in the old video games music, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I used a uh, Tascam DA, DA88, which was an 8-track digital machine. So I would have all the music going live to two tracks, and the next scene would be another two tracks. And I would just bounce between the two. And, you know, on a, on a Friday afternoon or Saturday afternoon, I'd have to send the tape off. So they could get it Monday or Tuesday and do the editing. And in the meantime, they would send me another tape. So were you recording on cassette tapes or on eight tracks, you said? Uh, digital audio tapes. Okay, digital audio tapes. Okay, okay. DAT, right? DATs were the final mix, yeah. Okay. It's just interesting to hear about the different technologies. I mean, especially now with, you know, you can send a file over through the internet and they can get it immediately. You know, I think especially with them all being in, in the East Coast. And we've had a previous conversation with one of the actresses on the show, and she was talking about how they would go into the studio in New York and they would all record it together. Um, and then, you know, obviously then that source audio would be sent over to you. Do you felt like you missed something by not being in the actual studio to kind of be inspired? Or did you not really feel like that, you know, made a difference one way or the other? Uh, I like being in the studio. Um, this was my first show, so maybe it was best I wasn't there because I'll, <laughs> I'll tend to have opinions and maybe it's best not to voice those opinions. <laughs> uh, I do miss, you know, you know, I'm one of the last guys. It's me and the sound effects guy and, and then the mixer and that's it. I miss the camaraderie. When I was doing Johnny Bravo, I'd go to Hanna-Barbera once a week and go over the story with the creators and the director and hang out with the writers. I've always loved hanging with the writers because when people write, they usually have music going. So they, they knew a lot about music. So there were a lot of fun people to hang with. That's a great point. Did, did you ever get any feedback from, you know, whether it was the writers or the artists or whoever, like, Hey, we're envisioning that in this particular scene, like this music is happening or this is the way that it carries, or was it kind of just, they, they let you to kind of do it, whatever you wanted. Um, I think they trusted my instincts. There were definitely times, probably in every episode, where there'd be a minute or two where they would swap something out that I'd previously written, maybe because they had that in mind when they were doing that scene. But uh, not on that show. It, uh, we were all we were all pretty much in sync. You know, That's it's not great. that anybody had any weird ideas. It's like we're we're all kind of going the same direction and creating this together. You know, creating the characters. and the, I didn't create the characters, but the music and the motifs. And, well, know. that's essentially character building. You know, each of the different motifs, as you said, is associated with a particular character. Yeah. If there were any problems, I'm sure they would tell me. But uh, Robert Mandel was very gracious uh, with every aspect of the show. And we've heard a lot about Robert's just his genuine personality and the fact that he was inspiring to other people and, and is, he continues to do so. Um, 
Is this the first time that you had worked with him? Was it only through your friend's connection that you kind of met him or had you known kind of of him before this? I didn't know him. Okay. <laughs> I'd never heard of him. Uh, on, on the way to my manager's office to meet him, I actually saw him parking his car and he couldn't find any quarters. So I gave him some quarters and <laughs> joked with him and we ended up walking into the same office. And you didn't even know who he was? No. no so we introduced ourselves. And How fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we still keep in touch. I'm not sure what's going on with the new show. Mm-hmm. Avalon Web of Magic. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. one, you know, it's unfortunately been in through some developmental fun. Um, it's been kind of back and forth. And we were just on another of our podcasts, we were discussing, um, actually, she's the composer for that series. We were talking with Deb and she was talking with Robert as well. And they're kind of trying to get it off the ground. So we definitely hope to see something more from there. She's a composer of which series? The, the Avalon Web of Magic. So the book series includes a CD and some other music that went with it. Um, so she is the composer, essentially. She's also the lyricist um, well, for, for the book series. And yeah, for she was music. like a songwriter. Yeah, she's a songwriter because I did write music for that book. I wrote mm. the and well, did, did you write the Avalon Orchestral Suite? Yes. Oh, okay. The music, it all comes together. <laughs> yeah, I think she's a songwriter. Yes, yeah, she's a songwriter. I'm sorry. I thought that she had also composed some of the stuff. Mm, maybe. Okay. I, don't, I haven't actually heard it. I just remember walking into a studio and a girl comes up to me and goes, hi, I'm Mandy. I'm like, hi, I'm Lou. I didn't know who she was. She was Mandy, Mandy Moore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's when they were recording the audio book. Yeah. How but fun. I don't know what Robert wants. I know he wants to hire me to do the show, but I know there's probably – Canadian financing mm. and uh, we'll see what we can do. My wife's Canadian, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, Oh, maybe she can start a company and hire me. I don't know. I don't know where that's at. That would be amazing. <laughs> if you can work on the new Avalon show, I would love it. I, I, I just desperately hope that that gets off the ground one way or another. I, I agree. It's, it's such yeah. a nice project. I know he's been Robert Mandel's been working on this for a number of years now. Yeah. Regarding the Jewel Riders music, um, you know, as a child, I, and I don't know if it was necessarily just motifs or what it was, but I think that I was just so used to. I don't want to necessarily say that it was like. Um, What's the word I want? Where it's just basically like music, like, okay, like this is the stock music that we're using. Like to clarify, you were basically scoring each individual episode, but did you also use, I guess, essentially like a, a jewel writer stock music library, like where you had a certain song and like they would kind of consistently use that throughout a couple of the different episodes? I would come up with different motifs each episode and I think use it for certain characters in different ways. But uh, <clears throat> that's about it. I would start at the beginning and work my way to the end. Um, I wanted to do something different than was going on. If you look at a cartoon, uh, the music in general, if you, if you just turn on the TV and look at a cartoon, the music has to be dramatically amped up more than what's on the screen. Because what's on the screen nowadays is just 
you know, you would be bored if you saw how slow things are. So you have to pace it fast. And what I wanted to do was not hit kids over the head with this, you know, here's the action music. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, look, we could have some beauty here. We could have something poetic. Mm-hmm. You know, let's do something moving for these characters and give them depth. And uh, we got away with it. <laughs> and I'm so glad for that, too. Oh, thanks. Did you, you have mentioned, a, uh-huh. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you had mentioned about the different uses of like the the drums and like, you know, the harps and things like that. And, and I know that you said that you didn't necessarily want to make it specifically reminiscent of like Celtic or, you know, English music. But as a child, it's just it helped to build a fantasy. So I just want to comment that I love a lot of the tunes and the motifs. I mean, I think that they're just they have such a magical quality to them that you didn't really hear in a lot of other cartoons during the time. Didn't hear in any other cartoons. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I started off uh, writing some counterpoint and it just, in, you know, the 12th century styles and 13th century styles. And it just, I thought that's where I started from and it just didn't work. And I trashed it and thought, okay, well I could write Renaissance type music with recorders and harps. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that plays. Yeah. And they're beautiful. Yeah. And some characters uh, didn't Gwen have a harp. Uh, Tamara did. Tamara had the heart. Okay. Yeah. This is what I mean when I I didn't get a lot of sleep because I had a newborn. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a blur, kind of. <laughs> Speaking of characters, were there any particular characters that you particularly enjoyed writing music for? Uh, that's a good question. Let me try to remember. I, I, I loved writing for the girls the most and the way they interacted because they all had to work together. Uh, to have a good outcome in the episode. You know, I think when they talk about friendship as magic, it's, you know, they're working together and their music has to work together. Uh, I enjoyed writing for them. The guys, they were pretty good. Merlin was a lot of fun. Ozzy. I, I just enjoyed the whole show, really. And what not to love, right? Like I just said, I just, I love the music and the fact that ever since a child, as I mentioned, you know, just being obsessed with the scoring, um, I, I loved animation and I always wanted to be in the field. And so, especially the music, as a child, I remember collecting the Disney soundtracks and I was just obsessed with the musical cues and I would just listen to the scoring because I would then end up using it for, you know, like my own versions of the Disney read-alongs or I would set them to our own plays and we would act out, you know, everything and add the dialogue, but it required having those scoring. So like even in high school, using that score like to do school plays or things like that, so, I mean, I've always loved isolated music tracks. I think that they're so beautiful. I'll, I'll see what I can do. I always wish I had the isolated tracks to Mary Poppins. Mm. Just unbelievable arranging. Right. And the Sherman Brothers. I got to work with the Sherman Brothers. Oh, how fun. They were, oh, I've got to hear that story. Uh, I got a call from Ken Kushnick on a, on a uh, Thursday saying they're doing this movie, Beverly Hills Cop 3, and it takes place in a theme park, and they've written this song called Wonder World. Uh, go over to their place on Friday, and you're recording on Sunday. <laughs> and you have to do a, a version for the movie, and then I have to do a marching band version. Uh, so that was another sleepless Oh, my god! <laughs> another sleepless weekend. <laughs> so, so Friday I go over, they had this... I don't know how to describe it. This just this dumpy little apartment 
in Hollywood on Harrod Street, Harrod Street or something like that, just in a nondescript building, you know, with kids running around a swimming pool. And I walk in and here are the Sherman Brothers, a grand piano, <laughs> records, you know, gold records on the walls, plaques on the walls. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is where you write the music. And they say we had to be somewhere where our wives wouldn't walk in and tell us to take out the trash. <laughs> <laughs> I totally get it. I have a studio in my house, too, and I totally get that. Right. And I sat, oh I sat down on the piano bench, and uh, Robert just starts playing the piano, selling it to me like he's a Tin Pan Alley songwriter pitching it to a, a record producer. I, I had a cassette machine that I put on top of the piano. Oh, boy, i got to find that cassette. That's probably wild. <laughs> then he starts playing the, the Wonder World song and he gives me a lead sheet. And they were so nice. They were so gracious. And I couldn't believe I'm meeting my idols. They say you don't want to meet the, your idols, but this is an exception. They were they were just so great. Uh, I was so excited. I forgot my cassette machine there. My <laughs> wife had to drive back to the apartment to pick it up because I was so embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, I got back home to Glendale. Oh, honey, you won't believe it. They were they were the nicest guys. And I went home and I, you know, fired up the gear and I arranged music and recorded music. And I did the marching band version. And on a Sunday, we were in a studio in Santa Monica, and we had uh, I had three voiceover people. And I wish I Randy Crenshaw was one of them. I know I did a lot of Disney, um, Disney books, Disney videos. And a couple other singers and the overdub and the Sherman brothers came and it was, it was like, where did this weekend go? What just happened? This was, this was amazing. I wish every weekend could be like this. That is fantastic. Yeah. And it ended up being a good percentage of the score. I was grossly underpaid, but I didn't care. <laughs> it's about the experience because you still can remember and just, you know, love the fact that you got to meet your idols. Um, yeah. Speaking of that, though, you did ask about Mary Poppins as a side note. Um, when you said the scoring, do you mean the isolated of the songs or did you just mean like the actual scoring from like the movie itself? Well, I would take both. Okay. It was just so brilliant. Well, because I can send you a link to the Mary Poppins. There's the Walt Disney Legacy collection. Mary Poppins was released as one of those. And I think that it also has some piano um, versions that the Sherman Brothers are demoing. Please send it to me. Yeah, yeah. definitely. You have my email? I think so. <laughs> we can talk afterwards about that. Okay. I'm easy to find. <laughs> yeah, Disney, Disney of... Major, major influence on me as a kid. Uh, my mother once took me to the Grauman's Chinese to see Fantasia. Oh, how fantastic. I, I was probably six or seven. And I kind of was like, I want to make people feel what this movie is making me feel. I couldn't put it in those words. Mm-hmm. So transformed by that. It was like, oh, my gosh. Were you a teenager or were you a younger child at that point? Young. Uh, Young. In third grade. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, Disney has definitely been an influence from a very early standpoint. Um, I think that especially, you know, being here in the heart of Hollywood also, to be able to go to some of those historic places, like how you said, you know, sometimes you get to go to like these theaters or sometimes you're just able to meet the actual people who, you know, created these things that you loved as a child. And I think that being a part of this community is just so, I, I think it's one of those main driving forces of, 
you know, behind being interested in this particular industry. I agree. I've never worked for Disney. I've wanted to my entire career. And I've worked for Warner Brothers and Paramount and, you know, MGM and never, I just can't, I just can't break the code. I don't know how to get in there. <laughs> well, it's definitely an experience. I'll just, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so Speaking now of, I wanted to oh, yeah. quickly I wanted to quickly ask about I saw on your website that you've done music for Universal Studios, the theme park. Oh yeah, and I wanted <gasps> to, did. to know what that so what that is about. Uh, let me back up to the '90s when I was doing uh, industrial films. There was a company, Kevin Biles Design, that I got a call to come and give them my reel. Then I went in and I dropped off a cassette with a fellow named Craig Hanna and a designer named Andrea Favilli. Uh, they met me for five minutes and I left and, and uh, they started running through the parking lot. No, come back, come back. We love your music. Uh, I sent them some stuff that I had written for Guinevere, actually. <laughs> and um, eventually, Andrea ended up designing half a Toontown with Jolene Cicero. A great artist on on was it on Hollywood Way or he designed the uh, the statue. He does a lot of sculpture. Uh, the statue of the uh, old time photographer. I'm not sure. Right next to Warner Brothers Studio. And Craig went on to to uh, be a big wig at Universal Studios. And so Craig. Uh, it's kind of nice. Other people I worked with started getting better work, so I got better work. I did the studio tour, the tram tour 2000. I did the tram tour for about eight years, different revisions of it, one with Whoopi Goldberg, and that was a lot of fun. And in the last uh, version of it, something I found fun, well, I'll, I'll get to this later. Anyway, so I did that. I did the Monster Makeup Show. I did a bunch of shows for Universal Studios, and I started writing for Universal Orlando. Uh, with Craig, I did uh, Fountains at Caesar's Palace. Did the mm. music for that. I did uh, music for Ferrari World in Abu Dhabi. Uh, then he, you know, formed his own company. He broke away, and I still still write for them. I just did a couple hours of music for Warner Brother World. Uh, where is it at? In Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to, I had my own land, which was really great. Oh, that's awesome! Instead of fancy land, I had I had uh, bedrock. Mm. So all the music for bedrock, and it was a Flintstones ride. I wrote music for a Scooby Doo dark ride, uh, Tom and Jerry roller coaster, a live Bugs Wait, Bunny. Where is all this? Uh, Warner Brother World in. Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi. Okay, Chris, pack your bags. We're leaving. I know. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I would love to do that because I'm a fan of dark rides and especially like classic Hanna-Barbera. So when you're saying like Bedrock and Scooby-Doo, I'm like, I need to go. Like, this sounds fantastic. Oh, yeah. For, for the Flintstones, I had an 18-piece big band in a studio. Wow. Oh, my well, gosh. This, that's this awesome. Good. And they, you know, they, they leased the Flintstones theme. Mm-hmm. Well, you know. I had to listen to it by ear and transcribe it and arrange it my, you know, in my own way. But I, I got to do the Flintstones. If you go to my website, uh, there's there's a whole section of music I wrote for that park. 
some of the my, some of my favorite is stuff I wrote for cue lines <laughs> while you're waiting to get on the ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's well, awesome. cue music is fun. I mean, I'll admit I do listen to some of that on YouTube. <laughs> I mean, I'm a pretty big <laughs> theme park junkie, so I enjoy all that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right. It's it's a haunted house. Mm-hmm. So a lot of haunted house themes and uh, yeah. Sounds fantastic. I want to go. <laughs> you sold me. I'm going to buy my ticket. I want to go. They told okay, me, we'll so, all go together. Yeah. So if you want to go, stick your head in a waffle iron for, you know, for 10 minutes. and There you go. <laughs> Sounds fun. Yeah, it's an indoor park. So. Um, so now my question was actually backing up to Jewel Riders. Okay. Um, and actually, before we go there, you said you, you were starting to tell a story where you were like, oh, my favorite thing about Universal. And then I think that you cut yourself off. I don't know. Did you want to finish sharing that? OK. Uh, 2004, uh, the fifth season of Johnny Bravo. No, no, no. It was Johnny Bravo goes to Bollywood. Uh, no, Hollywood. It was also a Bollywood. But this one was Johnny Bravo goes to Hollywood. And he goes to Universal's like studio and he goes on the tram tour and of course, there's the shark, and in, in the cartoon, it turns out to be Jabberjaw. Mm-hmm. But because I wrote the music for the tram, I got to write music for the cartoon, imitating the music for the tram. So I got to imitate myself. <laughs> you get to parody <laughs> your own self. That's fantastic. That was a career highlight for me, all 20 seconds. Of- <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Um, so regarding the sound mixing for Jewel Writers, um, yeah. with you know, with regards to like the Foley artists and things like that, after the initial vocal tracks have been recorded and then you recorded the um, orchestration pieces, did it then get sent out to be, um, you know, add the sound effects or was that done kind of in sync to your stuff or did you ever work with those people? I never worked with them. I never knew where they were going to be. I think I wanted to hear the music and see where they would put it in just out of respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of movies where there's so much great music and you can't hear it because the sound effects are just obliterating it. Right. But, uh, no, I, I never talked to anybody. Okay. I was just wondering if that was, I, I, I guess we go back to the stock library. If it was just all stock, you know, stock sound effects or if they actually had done some original Foley for it or anything like that. I have no idea. Okay. I guess it's another question we'll find out sooner or later. (laughs) There is one sound effect that I could be specific about, but it's at Hanna-Barbera. The sound of Fred in the bowling alley on his tiptoes going... Mm -hmm. Sounds like a xylophone. And it's actually the sound of Joe Barbera's couch. There was a spring or something that hit a piece of wood. Uh And they recorded that. And that's the sound of Fred going down the bowling alley about to throw the ball. Now, that's crazy. That's a fun story. <laughs> Never knew. <laughs> I just have to throw that in there. Well, kind of similar to that. I suppose unrelated, but I just like to share fun, you know, stupid trivia. Um, during the 30s when they were recording Snow White, someone used their empty wallet, because, you know, everyone had empty wallets, to make the squeaking of the dwarves' shoes. So okay. you just never know what you're going to find, you know, when you're doing Foley. Wow. I know, right? Ask away. Ask away. Questions. I kind of want to know how how you feel about working in animation versus working in live action television. I've only did a little live action. I did an ABC movie of the week. 
and uh, some pilots for Paramount that never really got anywhere. Uh, it's it's easier writing for live action because there's actually people you know acting. Where in animation, you know, limited animation, you really got to kind of you have to go deeper. You're allowed to go deeper if if you're willing. Um, you know, right. Because there's a, there's a story, uh, there's a tone color to it, there's a pace to it. Um, actually, the best book that I've ever read, and I really apply it to animation, it's called The Uses of Enchantments by Dr. Bruno Bettelheim. And he talks about the psychological implications of what uh, fairy tales mean and how it affects kids. Uh so if you approach it from that way, you get a better sense of pacing and what you're after. Not to get too deep here. <laughs> no, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's sort of in the Joseph Campbell school of thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the you know the the hero's journey and all of that. Exactly. And this is kind of like that. He, he'll take Beauty and the Beast and different stories and say what they really mean to the kid. And you can't explain that to the kid. You just have to uh, show them by example and moralities involved and understanding of consequences, you know, fairy tales. And, and this is a fairy tale. Princess Guinevere. It's a fairy oh, tale. Of course. You know, and it's all about consequences and actions and uh, re- resolving uh, conflict, resolving conflict being able to think it out. If you look at Bugs Bunny, I think he was popular because he was really wasn't violent. He had to outthink the predator, whoever's after him or whoever's, whoever's trying to better him. Uh, he had to be smarter. I think sometimes nonviolent would be a questionable thing, though. I mean, some of the Looney Tunes are quite violent, but I mean, I find it all a fun. Like, I love, I think Bugs Bunny as a character almost more than the Disney characters because Looney Tunes had a way of having such character, I guess you could say, about these different you know, stories and, and they're not afraid to kind of go above and beyond and be ridiculous about certain things. And that's what I really like about Looney Tunes, about Hanna-Barbera. I, I just, Avery. exactly. Oh my gosh. I love Tex Avery. So oh, that's yeah. what I really like about those cartoons and the music. Again, it plays a huge part in that. I mean, one of my favorite things are classic cartoons and why, because they are paying homage to the, you know, the music styles that were popular. So like, um, Tex Avery's, you know, Red Hot Riding Hood or, you know, some of the other cartoon series when they're talking about like Cab Calloway and like Betty Boop and things like that. Like I love the mix of the culture and how that plays a part in the actual show itself. Yeah, that was fantastic. In the case of Warner Brothers, they had access to the entire Warner Brothers songbook, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you know, and if they wanted to use it, they, you know, free advertising for them. But yeah, Betty Boop and Cab Calloway, that was wonderful. Oh, those Fleischer cartoons were... Oh, terrible. Max Fleischer. Oh, yes. Mind-boggling. He's another of my idols over the there. Fleischer oh. Superman cartoons are like some of my favorite cartoons of all time. Oh, they're amazing. they're amazing. And of course, those inspired Batman later in the 90s. Oh, of course. Yeah, they were a huge inspiration for that, for the Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, they mm-hmm. look epic novels. And speaking of time periods, though, because of the fact that Jewel Riders was, 
you know, being released in the 90s. And I know that you were trying to give it a feel of medieval and fantasy, but did you also use elements? I mean, I know that there are certain, you know, situations like, let's say, in the Home Sweet Heartstone episode when Tamara visits her family in, at the farm, there is a scene where they're um, in a canyon and they're trying to fight for the little babies who have been trapped and under a spell and Kale the villain has this organ and she starts playing, but then the two dweezels start, you know, rocking out on guitars and things like that. So it's like that definitely didn't necessarily exist in medieval, but again, it's a fantasy. So you could mix some of those elements. Yeah, we did. And it's funny you mentioned that. That's my favorite episode. Oh, fantastic. I love it. I love the music in that one. That's what I like. And the reason is when they sent it to me, they didn't have time code on one of the channels, so I couldn't synchronize to anything. So I was writing wild. It was like, I can't say from this <laughs> frame to this frame, what's my tempo going to be? You know, I had to just kind of look at it and improvise. And I think there's a looser feel to it musically. And uh, I really enjoyed that episode. Oh, I love it. I mean, you got rock. You got yeah. like, you know, country music. Yeah. You got still, you know, the classic violins and the harps. I mean, it's just a beautiful combination of everything. Thank you. It's, yes. It's <laughs> well, I'm glad that you remember that particular episode, because for me, that is the episode that actually stands out musically, at least as some of the best examples. Oh, thank you. I, I yeah. Yeah. So now then regarding the songs, tell us a little bit more about that. I know that you mentioned the name, but let's go over that name again. So, um, you know, for the songs itself, because you were only doing the scoring, do you know kind of the process or what was happening, at least for the song wise? Oh, Jeff Pacetto uh, at the time lived out in Calabasas. I think think he lives out that way still. Yeah, not too far away, but far enough. (laughs) He would do a song a week. And get a bunch of people together to record it. And I would never hear it. I never knew. Uh, they sometimes told me where it might be. But I was never quite sure. So I just kept writing music over where the songs are. It would have saved me a little time. And maybe I could have gotten more sleep. Probably. Yeah. Uh, but I did get together with Jeff quite a few times. We, we became pretty good friends. Okay. Very cool. He was a nice guy. Now, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is something else, but if you still have contact for him, I mean, we would love to get in contact with him too, or to talk to him or whoever it might be. Um, I think he's on Facebook. Okay. Well, we'll have to double check. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. I'll send you a link. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So now of course, merchandise wise, cause you know, after you've filmed and you've scored and everything else, now it's time to actually release the series. I know a couple of the voice artists, um, Laura Dean in particular, I believe, and I think that actually Corinne Orr as well, did some voiceovers for some of the um, syndicated commercials and some of the VHS commercials that they had on the, on the commercially released um, tapes. Did you do also like any of the promotional scoring or did they just kind of use your music or did you specifically create for those? Do you remember? I, I did not create for those. I imagine that they either used the score that I did or maybe they went to an ad agency and had somebody, you know, pump it up because, you know, they're selling girls dolls. Right. Right. They got to compete with, uh, you know, Barbie or whoever. I do mm-hmm. have the dolls. And then from there, another merchandise question, did sure. they ever discuss releasing like a soundtrack? Like, did they ever talk to you about that or did they anything like that? Uh, no, no, but, um, okay. I mean, good to know. I, the thing is, is that they released a, um, a British 
cassette tape that had the songs, not the score on it. And then they released a French soundtrack. Um, they didn't have the score again. It was just the song. So again, I guess children aren't necessarily always interested in that part of it. So that's why I'm saying like, I was always the one that was interested, but I guess they kind of saw, well, you know, we'll release the songs or whatever. So I would have loved it if they had released the whole thing though. Like, Hey, this is the music yeah. to Joe writers or something, you yeah. know? Now um, on that, on that British cassette tape, there is an orchestral piece that sort of leads into the opening song. Do you, was that something that you composed? It's got like uh, it flutes it one, and uh, was it the one for Web of Magic the book? No, no, it was just part of the. Um, it was like a theme song. It was sort of like an opening orchestral few, like a maybe like thirty seconds opening into the theme song for the show. Um, that's possible. I'd, I'd have to hear it. We could send you those. It sounds I mean, very flute recorder, and I'm like, oh, well, now that you mentioned that, that really made me think of it. Was there a harp? No, just flute. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, I'll send. We'll send you a copy and see if. Okay. See if you can if you recognize it at all. Sure. Sure. I feel like we covered a lot. <laughs> I think so I think so. I didn't think I had that much to say, but I guess. See, there you, you go. Thought it would be two minutes and done, and <laughs> and it wasn't. An hour later. <laughs> they send me tapes every week. I send them music back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but see, there was a lot more than just that, so yes. that's good. All right. We cannot thank Lou enough for joining us on this episode of the Jewel Writers Archive podcast. If you want to find out more about his music, you can visit his website at com. And if you want to find out more about Jewel Writers or Avalon Web of Magic, you can visit us at jewelwritersarchive.com. Or you can visit our sister site, the Avalon Archive, at avalonarchive.wordpress.com. If you want to find out more about this podcast, you can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. And as we always like to say at the end of the show, friends together, friends, friends forever. forever. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining in. Bye. Bye. Bye.